I don't know if you saw in the news recently the story of a 16-year-old boy from Texas. Um, he was in a car crash. He was drunk. The people that he crashed into, he killed. That in and of itself is a sad story. The reason, though, it made national news, international news, was the fact that he was spared jail. It was his fault. He was drunk, he was driving, he was culpable. So why was he spared jail? He might have expected to spend 20 years behind bars, but he ended up with kind of 10 years in a rehab centre. Why did he not go to jail? Well, a witness for the defence, a psychologist, said that the court should consider the mitigating circumstance of affluenza. Now, last time I spoke about money, a little while ago, um, I spoke about the affluenza book. It's affluence and influenza put together. It's not a real word, in case you're worried. But it's the way in which, in our Western culture, possessions and stuff and money affect our lives, affect how we think, how we process, how we feel, how we act and react, what we think is valuable, where we find value and worth, who we are. It's that nasty affliction whereby wealthy children thought that parental money could spare them from anything. You see, the guy in the car crash came from a broken and difficult home, but it was a very wealthy home. His parents had given him whatever he wanted. And so, apparently, he didn't know right from wrong. He, he couldn't be culpable. I wonder what you think of that. There's loads of things we could think about in that example. There's the idea of our secular society minimising culpability, blaming our environmental influences for making us act in a certain way. My upbringing, my culture, my parents, they made me do it. Sounds a bit like Genesis 3. What strikes me as interesting, though, is the idea that money can be bad. Money can be detrimental or damaging. I think the Bible would agree You can track it right through the scriptures. Moses, edge of the promised land, he knows he's going to die. He is urging the people, warning them, be careful that you don't forget the Lord your God. Because you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. He knows it's hard to remember the Lord when you can trust in what you have. I guess money can protect us in some ways from brokenness. But in return, it begs for our allegiance, our worship, makes us arrogant. Jesus, again and again, hints that it's it's dangers, it's deceitfulness. He says, you can't serve God and money. And we say, I probably can. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. We say, well, I'll be okay. We need to take care when it comes to money. One of the authors of the book of Proverbs, we don't know very much about him, his name was Agur. He says this very wisely, he says, Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise I may have too much much and disown you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal, and so dishonour the name of my God. What would you say your relationship is with money? 
Would you agree with Agur? Neither poverty nor riches. We like the first bit. Not so sure about the second. We've said it before at Magdalen Road, but what we spend our money on, the budget that we produce as a church, as individuals, it shows the world what we love. Because you can tell me till you're blue in the face the things that matter to you. But, but until you show me your bank statements, it, it might just be talk. It's tricky to talk about giving. Because we are made to feel guilty all the time. You know what it's like to walk down Corn Market in town and the guys in their matching T-shirts, the charity muggers, chuggers, coming to leap on you and you try and avoid eye contact with them because you just don't want to go there. Or it's on TV, you turn your eyes away from the hurting, desolate children and the, the passionate Scottish voiceover because studies have shown that the Scottish accent means we give more. That is true. So we become cynical and hardened and reluctant. We, we know what it is like to reluctantly give under pressure. What about giving to church? Lots of bad reasons to give in church. People give to impress others. Jesus talked about that, the, the song and the dance and the ring of the bell and making sure everyone has seen me as I stuff my notes into the box. Maybe earning something. People give because they think, we've said it before in previous weeks, God is a vending machine. If I put my money in, out will come the blessing that I want. The promotion at work, whatever it might be. People can give to pay God back. They think, God has been so good to me. I just want to pay him back. I want to kind of re-tip the scales in some way, make it a bit more of a balance. But, but if all that we have is from him... If we are utterly in debt, there's no way that we can tip the balance again. 1 Chronicles 29, Anglican liturgy, picks up on it as well. All that we have comes from you and of your own do we give you. We can't tip the scale back. We can't pay him back. People give because they know that's what everyone else is doing. It's not so much the culture of our church. We, de- we deliberately don't pass plates around or bags around. But in some churches, it's, well, you're doing it, I feel I ought to do it. And whoever you are is expected to give. Lots of bad reasons. And so money and giving is a complicated topic. We don't talk about it much on Maldon Road. If you're here visiting us, I want you to realise this is a really unusual Sunday for you. So I apologise for that. We do not talk about money much at all. I want to say as well that we need to be self-aware Because as we think about money, it's not just decisions in our brains that matter. It's our hearts, isn't it? It's the allure of money, of wealth, our affections, our dreams, our hopes. So what is the right motivation for our giving? Where ought our giving come from? Well, we're going to be just in one verse 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. Let me read it for you again. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, 
might become rich. Okay, the background in Corinthians is that different churches are partnering together to help Christians in need. So it seems that Paul is organising some kind of financial collection from different churches that he's planted to go and help the the poor churches in Jerusalem, Christians who are struggling. They're, They're in need because of persecution, they're in need because of famine. And so the church in Corinth say, well, yes, we'd love to help. Paul comes and explains to them the situation and they say thank you. They've received the prayer letter, they've picked up the giving forms, they've taken them home, they've promised to pray about it, to fill them in, to send them off. And Paul then headed off to Macedonia and told the Macedonian church, look at Corinth and the Macedonians, even in their poverty, say, wow, we'd like to give generously too. Even out of our poverty, we want to give and be generous to Christians in need. And so Paul's plan of action is to go back to Corinth, and it looks like he will take with him some of the Macedonians plus their gift and pick up some from Corinth and their gift and go together to Jerusalem to give to Christians in need. Diverse churches, different churches united, helping brothers and sisters who are suffering. I heard the story recently of a, of a church in Kenya. Uh, Christians who are struggling, and um, they are partnered with a wealthy church in the UK. And one of their ministers headed to Kenya and and met a housebound couple who couldn't make it to church, but who benefits from a food fund that this church supports. And their message back to the UK was, please send our greetings to your people and tell them that we can see their faith is real. Christians helping brothers and sisters in need. Partnership. But what is it that is at the principle of this giving in verse 9? What is at the heart? What fuels their generosity? I take it it is not guilt, but it is grace. It is grace. So first point, Jesus, though he was rich, became poor for us. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. In the original Greek, the emphasis of the sentence is for you. That is the key bit. For you he became poor, being rich. Jesus became poor for you. It's a bit like what we looked at last week. This isn't just theology that is kind of out there somewhere. Notes that we file away in a cabinet. Doctrines that we hold to. Chew over objectively on a Sunday. This is personal. Christian, for you, the richest man in all the world, in all of history, became poor. For you. How was he rich? I take it in one sense, he had everything. All the angels of heaven could adore him, continually bowing down, as Isaiah says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And yet he lays his riches aside so that he is poor and scorned and mocked, for whom Isaiah later writes, he was despised and rejected, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. 
we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we we considered him punished by God, stricken, afflicted. He was the one who had everything. The one who owned everything, made through him, for him. And yet he said of himself he had no place to lay his head. They had to borrow a manger in which to lay him down as a baby. They had to borrow a tomb in which to lay him down as a body. And they all left him, deserted, alone. He was rich, yet for our sake, he became poor. He takes on human flesh and holds nothing back. As John puts it, a verse full of beauty, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. On the hill, on the cross, he pours out everything, holds nothing back. No half measures, no reserves, no conditions. Pours out everything he has for us, for you. He became poor. Why? Well, because of our sin. The way in which we love and follow and worship the things that he gives us rather than the one who gives us them. We we love the gifts not so much the giver. You can apply it to the realm of wealth really helpfully. One writer has said this. He says, in, in our addiction to materialism, we are trying to make ourselves feel better. But any happiness we get is usually only temporary. As soon as one high wears off, we go in search of another fix. We try harder and harder to get the world to give us what we want. We buy more clothes, we go to more parties, we eat more food, we try to make more money. Or we give up on these things and try different things. We, we take up squash. We buy a video camera. We decide to move house. We look for new friends. But true peace of mind is as elusive as ever. Which again, I guess, reveals something of our poverty. When life is simply reduced to to what we have or what we would like to have, then life is empty of meaning. There was an interesting article um, at the end of January, just a couple of weeks ago, by a, a trader from New York, a guy called Sam Polk. Um, He was a rich man, and he spoke very honestly about the addiction that he felt of wanting more and more and more. So he starts his article like this. You can look it up. You Google uh, Sam Polk, New York Times. Um, You will find him. He said this, In my last year on Wall Street, my bonus was $3.6 million, and I was angry because it wasn't enough. I was 30 years old. I had no children to raise. I had no debts to pay, no philanthropic goal in mind. I wanted more money for exactly the same reason as an alcoholic needs another drink. I was addicted. And in the article, he he recounts his rise to success and then how his eyes suddenly were opened to the dangers, to the system, the lack of contentment, the way his heart was getting more and more snared and taken in. And the article ends like this. He says, I was lucky. My experience with drugs and alcohol allowed me to recognise my pursuit of wealth 
was an addiction. The years of work I did with my counsellor helped me heal the parts of myself that felt damaged and inadequate so that I had enough of a core sense of self to walk away. A, A life defined by what he had, by getting more stuff, and by it never quite being enough, always elusive. And he recognised it damaged him. Sin damages us. But because of the cross, but because he who was rich became poor, because of his grace and kindness, because he's the God who loves to lavish gifts on his children, So Jesus dies and lays it down for you. Despite our poverty, despite our sin, we can be rich. So we, though we are poor, became rich in him. Yet for your sake he became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. I was very struck um, before Christmas when Peter Comont was preaching one of his final sermons to us in that little series just in, in December um, from Luke. And he was speaking of how um, Tim Comont, his, his son, middle son, um, some of Tim's friends couldn't quite cope with the way that Christians that they had come across in real poverty and real destitution were happy and were content, were filled with joy. And they were, couldn't get to grips with it. How do these, these people who have so little, who have lives so full of suffering and full of pain, how do they have joy? Well, the answer, because they have a perspective that we need. They have a contentment that knows, although in global monetary terms, they are very poor. In eternal spiritual terms, they are so rich. They are overflowing, bubbling over with riches in Christ. And the thing is, is that they believe it. They believe it. As Jesus says to the the church in Smyrna, in Revelation, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Christian, do you see that because of the cross, you are rich? You have the most precious thing in all the world. They believe it. If you are here today and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or you're not sure or you're just looking in on stuff... I want to say something to you. I want to say, please don't give any money to the church. Okay, we really, really don't want your money. I know because of our hearts, that might be a kind of temptation. People come to church and they put money in the collection because that's just the way you do things. You might think we're after your money. We are not. We want much more than your money. We want you. Perhaps better, God wants you. He wants you back. Maybe you're aware of your poverty. The way that you seek meaning and worth and value in in people and pleasures and power and all kinds of things. 
and you see how your life is driven by those things. But, but none of it quite works. You're always after the next thing. Maybe you're struck by the way that people with so much less than you can have, in one sense, so much more. Well, it's because of our poverty that Jesus became poor. And so it's because of the cross that we can be rich. Rich in him, not rich necessarily in terms of money and finances. Some churches will tell you that. They are wrong. That is not true. That is a very dangerous teaching. But rich rather in being who we were made to be. Rich in forgiveness and freedom and family and future. Rich to be who we were made to be. All because Jesus dies on the cross and becomes poor for us. If you're someone who's never quite latched onto that before, never quite understood that, maybe you thought God was after your money or your good deeds. Well, do you see how generous he's been with you? Whatever your history, whatever you've done, whatever's gone on in years gone by, months gone by, weeks gone by, you can be rich in him because of the cross. Trust Christ So do you see the paradox this week? The paradox is Jesus becomes poor for us and we become rich in him. The one who had all the eternal wealth sets it aside so that we have true riches. But what does this say about our giving? What has this got to do with giving? Remember, Paul is urging the Corinthians to partner with him to give generously to those in need, to give to the work of the Lord. And the very heart of his argument, there are other reasons he tells them to give, you can read around the passage, but the very heart seems to be verse 9. Because Jesus has poured himself out for you, so be generous. Because he has held nothing back, so you hold nothing back. And the problem is, when we're honest, that's not how we give. It's a nice idea, but the reality of our hearts is they're stingy. We find giving difficult. It's our precious money. We've worked hard for that. We've slaved for that. Why do we need to to give it away now? I've planned how I'm going to spend it. I've got a budget. not giving that away. We err on the side of caution. We struggle to be generous. We make sure our needs are met first. But the problem is, the money that we have is not ours. It's his. The story is told of the pig and the cow. And they're talking about giving. And especially which one is more generous than the other. The cow says, well, just look how much milk I give. Pints and pints and pints to the supermarket. And the pig? He just points to a side of bacon. And says, what you give, that just represents a contribution. You don't really miss it. 
for me, it's a sacrifice. It's a challenge, isn't it? As we consider verse 9 and think through what our giving looks like. Are you a stingy Christian? Then, then look to the cross. Because that is where you see generosity. Apparently it was Martin Luther who said there were three conversions necessary for the Christian. There's the conversion of the mind to gospel truth. There's the conversion of the heart to embrace Christ. And there's the conversion of the the purse or the wallet, the laying of one's money at Christ's feet. Look at the cross. Look at how he pours himself out for you. Look at how he holds nothing back for you. And know that he gives you the security that you need in life. It doesn't come from savings. Look at how he gives you worth and meaning and value and an identity. It means you haven't got to compare yourself with others. It means you don't need the nicest car or the best house or whatever it might be. Look at the cross. But I want to say this as we finish. And I say this gently, but it needs to be said. I want to say to you, make sure giving happens. That is why Paul is writing here. He wants them to follow through on the good intentions that they have. He knows how easily it can kind of slip down the priority list. It was the way that we pick up a a form and we sort of sit on it and we chat about it and it goes down the to-do list, ding, 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 ding. And before we know, it's kind of slipped away. Too easily we can end up being a, a dam. We receive the gifts, we receive the grace and they stick with us rather than rather than being a channel for them to work through into the lives of others. I know what it's like. I've done it myself. You pick up the form. It's good intentions. And you get halfway through the week and you think, ah, I need to think about that. And then months later, it kind of hangs over you and it nags. But we just sort of conveniently don't quite get round to filling it in. And I say this because I'm with you. And I've done it. I want to say, if you are a guest or visitor, close your ears. I'm sorry that you have joined us in a slightly weird one. I pray God will help you as you think through whatever church it might be that you join or that you're a part of. Or it will help you as you think through your giving. But if you're here to stay, then we would love you to consider giving to the work of Magdalen Road. It doesn't need to be much, but it is good to give a bit. You can pick up a form at the back. There are these light green ones like this. It's a gift aid declaration, a standing order thing. And if it'll help you, as I suspect it might help me, then don't be embarrassed about filling it out and putting it in the box straight away. Because then it's done. And you haven't got to worry about it. Paul said to the Corinthians, make sure giving happens. Not because you feel guilty, but because you understand grace. Grace is what motivates us for life. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you through his poverty 
might become rich.